Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Studi. I am the youth pastor here at Washington Heights Church. Roy is taking some well-deserved time off this week and asked me to step in and continue as we journey through the book of Ephesians. And today we are starting in Ephesians 2. We'll be going through verses 1 through 10. If you have your Bible or if you want to throw up in the Bible app, you can follow along in there too. Uh, before we jump into that, though, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about myself. I was a guy who was uh, raised in the 80s. I am a member of Generation X the forgotten generation of latchkey kids. Some of you are with me in that. Uh, I spent a lot of my childhood uh, at home alone watching television uh, because naturally that's what you do when you're home alone and you're a kid. And I was uh, enthralled by TV. I love the stories on television. And I think the ones I gravitated most to were the stories of transformation where someone starts at the beginning of the show as you think they're one thing and by the end they turn into or are someone completely different. And this continues to stay. Some of you may be familiar with this. Um, like my wife, she loves to watch Hallmark movies, and typical Hallmark movie, you start, she's the woman at the beginning of the show, she's engaged to the wrong guy, she thinks it's the right guy, then she gets in her car and she travels, the car breaks down, she meets a dog along the way, she goes back to her hometown where she finds her long-lost high school crush and or boyfriend, and they end up dumping the first guy, she marries the second guy, and it's this transformation from who she was originally, she doesn't go back to this she stays in her hometown to run an arts and crafts store. <laughs> Maybe you've seen it. Uh, or or uh, reality TV. I love reality TV too. It's a guilty pleasure. Um, there was a show that used to be on. It's off the air now, but it, talk about transformation. This one was probably the greatest transformations we have ever seen on uh, television. It, it was a little show called The Biggest Loser. You guys heard of this one? Uh, it was a reality show. They would find people, everyday ordinary folks who were morbidly obese. They would recruit them to be on the show. They would take them out to a ranch in California where they would sequester them for months on end and uh, they had personal trainers who would torture, no, they would uh, help them work out, teach them how to eat properly, and over the course of the season, they would lose weight, and if you had the greatest weight loss by the end of the show, you were labeled the biggest loser, and they got some fabulous cash prize. But the transformations that you saw these people go through from the beginning of the season to the end were phenomenal. And it reminds me of a movie also. There was a little movie back in the 80s. Uh, I'm a big movie fan. And there was a movie, it was a, it was a drama of a teenage coming uh, of age story. Uh, it starts out with a, a young man and his mom. They uh, live in New Jersey, but they're forced to move across country to San Fernando Valley in California. There, this young man unwittingly makes enemies with the local gang who hunt him mercilessly, beat him up, and threaten his very livelihood until that is, this young man finds a mentor, a janitor, and he teaches him the ways of karate. And we see this young man, through the course of several months, transform from someone who could not de uh, defend himself to a karate champion who ends up winning the All-Valley Under-18 Karate Match to raise the title high. If you haven't seen it, it's called The Karate Kid. It's a great movie, you should go There's a several of them. Uh, there's a follow-up show on Netflix. Um, it's, it's a good tale. But I bring this up because it's stories of transformation, and they're all over the television, they're all over entertainment, and a little-known fact, they're also found within the pages of our Bible. 
We're walking through the book of Ephesians, which was written by a guy named Paul. And Paul's story is one of amazing transformation. Paul started out, he was a Pharisee. He was one of the Jewish elite. He worked his entire life to learn the scriptures, to follow the law of Moses, to study hard the rabbinical laws so that he could be hands and shoulders above all of the other Jews that he would be held in high esteem. Paul stood by and held the cloaks of those who murdered Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, and by doing so gave tacit approval for the murder and arrest and trial of members of the early church. Paul didn't stop there, though. He went to the Sanhedrin, the high Jewish court, and petitioned them, said, give me an arrest warrant, and I will go out, and I will find members of this breakaway group. I will arrest them, and I'll bring them back to Jerusalem so that they can stand trial, too. And it was while he was on the road to Damascus, arrest warrant in hand, that he had an encounter with the living God, the raised to Jesus. And it literally transformed his life. Everything he used to be, he stepped aside and became a follower of Jesus. He became one of the most prolific church planters that the world has ever seen. He wrote the majority of what we call the New Testament. And he dedicated the rest of his life to moving and helping people meet and follow Jesus. It changed his life but his story of transformation radically changed the course of history. And so as we dive into these verses, we keep that transformation story in the back of our mind as we open up in Ephesians 2, verse 1, where Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. If you've been following along, you know that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Ephesus, one that he helped plant and start. And he's writing to build them up, to give them hope and direction on how they're to live their lives. But in chapter 2, verse 1, he starts out pretty bleak. He says, you were dead in your sin, and you're children of wrath. Prior to God, you were children of wrath. And I don't know about you, but like I hear this uh, terminology and it seems kind of harsh to me because I think a lot of times we like to justify our sin. We like to say, look, I'm really not that bad. I remember back before I was saved, I would justify a lot of things and say, yeah, I did that, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And I'm a youth pastor, so of course I brought some things to illustrate to help uh, paint this picture for you guys. I'm going to set that down. I brought some friends from my office. I've got, um, I've got the Hamburglar. You guys know him, 80s kids. I've got Grimace, he just had a birthday. Um, I don't know what that guy is, but there he is. And then uh, my favorite one, I've got Johnny Lawrence. He, he was in the Karate Kid. Here's the bad guy. He's me, because he's kind of cool, actually. All right, so here's my, here's my uh, illustration. I look at the things I've done wrong, and I go, yeah, I'm not perfect, but I'm not terrible either. 
right? And like, like if God was going to start a lineup of everybody based on how good or bad they are, I think me, I'd be kind of like back here by the back of the line. I, I certainly wouldn't be up at the front because I look at it and go, I'm, I'm generally a good person. Like I pay my taxes, I go to work, I, I you know, take care of a family, I do the right thing most of the time. So this is me. And then you got this guy. Again, I don't know his name. But this guy, maybe he uh, cheats on his taxes. And this guy, you know what this guy's, he loves the speed in school zones. That's what he does. I never do, I mean, I mostly don't. All right, sometimes. But this guy always does it. Always speeds in a school zone. So he's way worse than me, right? He cheats on his taxes. He likes to speed around little kids. I pay my taxes. And I generally, I mean, if I do speed, it's really just an accident because I didn't know there was a school zone. Sometimes. <laughs> then you got Grimace. Grimace is worse yet. Grimace, um, he likes to lie and steal and cheat. Grimace set up a, a Ponzi scheme selling um, mint-flavored shakes to all of his friends with promises of riches that never turned out. Grimace is deceitful, and generally most people look at Grimace and go, you're not a good guy. And then you have Hamburglar, the worst yet. I mean, look at him, he's in a prison gown. He's <laughs> gotta be bad, right? Hamburglar represents the serial killer, the mass murderer, the school shooter, the dictator, the autocrat, the person who does everything he can for his own gain and doesn't care who he hurts, kills, or destroys in doing so. And so you look at this lineup and you go, man, I'm all the way here at the back because I'm a pretty good person. I'm nowhere near as bad as that guy. Certainly God isn't going to judge me the same as him, right? But the problem with this line of thinking is this isn't how God... Well, sees our sin. God sees it this way. Because God is a holy God. And anything less than perfect holiness falls short of his glorious standard. And so we can try to deceive ourselves, but the reality is we are in a lateral line, standing up, waiting for God's judgment. Paul says we're dead. Paul, Paul says something in Romans, and he makes it seem so much worse. In Romans, Paul says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. And their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers. They're haters of God. They're insolent, proud, and boastful. They, they invent new ways of sinning, and they disobey their parents. Every parent in here is going, oh, hey, <laughs> we made the list. They refuse to understand. 
They break their promises. They're heartless and have no mercy. They know God's judgment requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. And worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. This is the bleak assessment of people without God. They're dead. They're lost in their sin. And, and I want you to know, when Paul says they're dead in their trespasses, like he was intentional about using that language because he could have said something. He could have softened it. He could have said they're lost in their sins. But if you say you're lost in your sin, that opens the door to say that maybe you can find your way out. But Paul says that they're dead. He says that they're dead in their sin. That we were dead in our sin. Prior to Christ, there was nothing we could do on our own. What can dead people do? I'll tell you what they can't do. Dead, dead people can't think. Dead people don't talk. Dead people can't move of their own accord. Dead people can do nothing. And he says, we were dead in our sin. Let me show you some other things that dead people can't do. Dead people can't save themselves or earn their own salvation. You can't earn your own salvation away from the grace of God because you're dead. Great message on a holiday weekend, Matt. I know. But this is what the word says. It says that we're lost in our sin and we're dead in our sin and we cannot earn our own salvation. Here's the fact. We can never be good enough. We can never do enough good things. We cannot earn our way to heaven. Why? Because we're dead. And dead people don't move. Another thing dead people don't do. Dead people don't initiate a relationship with God or reconcile themselves to him because dead people can't speak. You look at the verses from Romans and that tells you what dead people do. They're backstabbers and insolent and proud. They don't wanna know God. They can't begin to initiate a, re a relationship with him because they're so far from him. They can't begin to bridge that distance. See, God is holy. And, and the Hebrew root word for holy is Kadesh. And that means set apart. He's set apart from us. He's entirely other than us. Because he is a holy and living God. And we are dead in our sin. Another thing dead people can't do is produce true spiritual life or experience a genuine trans, uh, uh, transformation because we can't move. Because on our own, we are stuck in the death and the stench of our sin. And this is the picture that Paul paints. He says, this is who you were before Christ. You could do nothing on your own. You could never be good enough. 
You can't initiate a relationship with me. You can't produce true spiritual life. Yeah, there's a lot of spirituality in our culture, but that's different than true spiritual life or relationship with God. See, spirituality says, if you do enough of the right things, if you check enough of the boxes, that you can achieve a state where God will accept you. But Paul is saying, we're dead. And there's nothing we can do on our own. The last thing that dead people can't do is understand or grasp the depths of God's grace on their own. See, on our own, we, we wander this planet digging in the mud with sticks, trying to find something shiny, trying to find something that fills that inner desire that tells us that there's something more. It's like in Dawn's story, she said she always felt like there was more, like there had to be more than what she was experiencing. And all of us, I think, on some level feel that. But we don't know how to break out of it on our own. Is a quote from David De Silva. He's an author. He said, the dead can do nothing to help themselves and they can certainly do nothing to exert leverage on the deity to do something for them. Why? Because we're dead. Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us there. Paul says, but God... And I intentionally left the dot, dot, dot because this could go a couple of ways. Like if we get what we deserve, if we get what our sin earned us, it would be, but God cast him aside. But God turned away from them. But God left them in their current state. But God saw fit to judge them for what they had done. But that's not what Paul says. Paul brings us a message of hope and he says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. See, here's our spiritual state. We're dead, but God loves. We're dead, but God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son down from heaven to inhabit a body of flesh, that he would live on this earth, experience all the temptations and trials that we do, that one day he would willingly give up that life. He would be arrested, beaten, tortured, eventually hung on a Roman cross where he would die to pay the ultimate price for the debt of sin that we owe. And in doing so, Three days later, he rose from the grave, and now we're alive. When you cross the line of faith and you put your trust in Jesus, you go from dead to life, 
from being incapable of doing anything to having a life that is worthy of something, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. See, by God's grace through faith, we're transformed from death to life. God's in the business of taking things that are dead and making them alive. And that's something that's the greatest hope that this world has ever heard. And it's only through his grace that we receive this because it's not something we can earn. Paul says it's his grace so that we can't boast about it because if it was something that I did that earned my grace, sure, I'm gonna walk around and say, look how great I am. But he says, no, it's not because of anything you did. That's not that works aren't important, but it's not your works that saves you. It's the grace that God freely gives, this unwarranted favor, this free gift that none of us could earn, that's freely given, that all we have to do is accept it. And at the moment you do, your eternity is secured. But oftentimes we cross that line of faith and we think, man, good work, job's done. Now we just live our lives out, right? Not quite, because God has work for us to do. Finishing the verse, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've put your faith in him, there's work to do. There's work to do that he has predestined us to do. And what that work looks like is varies depending on who you are and where you are in this world and, and what your circle of uh, connection or community looks like. See, we think that oftentimes, man, it's the pastor up on the stage. It's his job to tell people about God and to spread the gospel. But Jesus has called us each and every one to be his disciples, which means we should be in the practice and the business of repeating and replicating ourselves by telling the people in our circle who Jesus is. In our homes, workplaces, communities, schools, at the grocery store, Wherever we see need, we're to step in and help people meet and follow Jesus in whatever context that looks like in your life. That's what being a follower of Jesus is like. Because we sit back as his followers and we have this great assurance of a future and a hope, but we continue to walk this planet with millions of people who have never heard the message of his grace and salvation and when Jesus left his disciples, that was the number one job he gave. To go and make disciples, teach them everything I've taught you, teach them to follow my commands, and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So each of us has a charge. Each of us has a job to do. And whatever that looks like in your personal context in your life today. That's what we're supposed to be going out and doing. And, and maybe, maybe it's something as simple as being involved with what Washington Heights is doing here. It's not the only thing, but maybe it's one thing. Maybe for you, being involved in teaching is the next generation going and holding crying babies during a service or, or serving with uh, chaos that is children's ministry. The, the leaders aren't chaos, the kids are, it's fine. 
Maybe it's being a part of four, five, six zone, helping preteens meet and follow Jesus. Maybe for some of you who are particularly twisted like me, it means sitting across from the blank stare of an angst-ridden teen and going, God loves you. And he cares about you right where you are. Whether it's within these four walls or out in your communities, the message from Paul is clear. The line of faith isn't the finish line. The line of faith is the starting line to the rest of our life, regardless of how much time we have left on our journey that Jimmy was talking about. God calls us to live it out in faithful service to help people meet and follow Jesus so that they can experience the grace and salvation that we followers already have. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning. And Lord, I just pray that if someone watching in this room or online has come to the point where they're ready to put their faith in you, God, I pray that you just give them the courage that you'd fill them with your spirit to know that you love them, to know that by putting your faith in him, eternity is secured and it changes the rest of our life as we work dedicated to helping people know who you are so that we can make heaven full one day through your grace, through your glory, not by us, but to bring you all the praise. God, I pray that you would help us to be your hands and feet in our communities, that we would look with empathy upon those who need help, that we would serve in any way we can, that we would give back freely of the riches that you've blessed us with, that maybe some of us would get on a plane and go to a faraway country to help orphans know who you are. Or just as importantly, to spend time right where you've planted us, dedicatedly praying for our neighbors who might be so far from you. God, I pray that you fill us with your spirit. Help us to leave this place the greater understanding of who you are and why you came and why that matters in the way that we live our lives. God, we love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.